to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. All right. Welcome back, everybody. It is January 2022. We thank you for listening for um, the last two years-ish, you know, or wherever you joined us and making a commitment to your learning. We hope that you are doing well. We're your hosts, Emmy Von Brandenburg, joined by the amazing Jordan Porter. Hi. <laughs> Do you love it? I'm just going to say your name all weird every single time now. Just change it up every time too. <laughs> right. Hey girl. Hey. Hola. Oh my goodness. How are you this morning? I'm cold. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. You guys should see this. Like Jordan's got like a giant blanket around her. There's a heater to her left and a candle to her right. Like, I feel yeah. like, <laughs> I feel like you just need like a bonfire or something. <laughs> I know. I know. I need, I, well, Ugh. as everybody knows, I don't tolerate being cold very well no. in general. Um, but the heat went out in my house, which I'm grateful for because it falls under the home warranty. And I was really hoping it would crap out before like my, oh, home was, like, yeah. up. but like, it's also 40 degrees here right now. Oh, damn girl. I'm sorry. And it was 80 degrees last week. And so it's just like, <sighs> You're like 40 degree changes. A body yeah. can't handle it. <laughs> no. And like, I just, I just don't like being cold. It makes me grumpy and like. Do you I have like a snowsuit? No, I, I don't. Like you should wear a snowsuit. <laughs> I should. So I'm also, so I'm going to Ohio next month, remember? And oh, like, that's right. I'm zero prepared for that. Like I have zero. I own hoodies. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, but like, okay, wait, you're going to Ohio for a conference though, right? Yeah. Is How many days is it? I'll be there for three days. Okay, you're going to be in the conference center. But it's getting like to and from places. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> you're going to be like, I can't step outside. You're just going to sleep in the conference center. You're like, I'm good. I'll just tent yeah. right here. <laughs> stay here and like find the warmest spot in the entire <laughs> My brother, oh, I'll just tell my brother, never mind. I don't need to stay with you. I'm just going to stay there. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, which conference is it? This is the Midwestern Veterinary Conference. Nice. So if anybody's going to Midwestern, say hi to Jordan. And give me some gloves. Yeah. Right. Because you're doing, okay, wait. So is it next week that you're going? Yes. Next week I'm going to VMX. And that's in? Orlando, Florida. So at least I'm going somewhere warmer. Hopefully, hopefully it's not some weird freaking crazy oh, weather happening. With my luck. <laughs> right? Oh my God. Beautiful. You're like, I show up with a bathing suit and you're like, oh God, I need the snowsuit. <laughs> well, I'm trying to decide if I want to bring a dress. I have this dress that I want to wear. It's very casual, but like nice and like mm. shows off my logo leg. And like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would bring it, but just also bring really warm clothes just in case. Yeah. It's one of those dresses, though. I could wear leggings underneath if I wanted. Mm. Oh, nice, nice. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, I think um, so. You've got that going on. I've got. Well, <laughs> I have to do some proceeding notes for something I'm doing in April in San Diego, um, and I just realized that's coming up soon. And I was like, "Oh God!" <laughs> so Jordan and I are freaking out about all the homework that we have right now. <laughs> I know, I know. I have an article that's due too at the end of this month. <laughs> I guess this is what we get for trying to uh, educate the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm trying to share my knowledge, but like I like to procrastinate on it. Yeah. Do you, oh, so. Kind of speaking of that. Um. Well, first of all. December was a shit show. Like, yeah. Um, I feel like I'm just kind of re I wouldn't even say recuperating. I'm going to say 
figuring out where I am in the world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, Um, I think I, I think I probably talked about it at some point. Maybe. I don't know if I did or not. Not much. Not much. Yeah. And I think that was just because, um, my dad wanted to keep things pretty private. So, um, part of the reason why Jordan and I have not recorded anything in the last few weeks is, um, my dad passed away right before Christmas. So things have been a little bit crazy. Um, and I'm just trying to get back to normal. So today is getting back to normal. Um, yeah. Oh my God. It's been crazy. And Jordan's also had craziness with her. I mean, thankfully nobody's died for you. Nobody. Let's just not, no, (laughs) you've just been crazy busy with everything. So, you know, plus it was just the holidays and well, now it's meat season two for Bailey. So it's like gymnastic <laughs> is starting to overrule my life again. And like, like, meat as an M-E-A-T? No. <laughs> and I was like, well, I know you have a farm, but I didn't realize you were going that far with it. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're going full blown farm. Oh, speaking of that though. Oh God. started laying eggs. Oh, yay. We've been getting an egg a day. So only one of them is laying eggs. <laughs> and they're so little. They're like... They're like half size eggs. Like they're so little. Aww. They're really cute. And one of my How chickens. How old are the there. chickens now? They're like four to six months or something like that. No, they're, they're what? We got them in April. Really? Holy crap. Eight months. <laughs> Wait, when did you guys move? Nine months. I got them. Oh no, you're right. I got them in August. Okay. I was like, holy crap. It's been that long. So I moved in August. I'm thinking the dogs. The dogs are nine months old. The dogs are nine months old already. Yeah. Moomoo's probably, dude, he's got to be like 105 pounds. Holy he's crap. So <laughs> he's so big. <laughs> oh my God. He's just like, all have a farm. like, that's it. <laughs> Is he the biggest out of all the puppies? Oh, for sure. Oh my God. Some of them, I've seen pictures of some of them that I don't have, obviously. And um, they're big, but they're wide. Like a lot of them got the bulldog in them. So they're like, Oh, so they're all chesty. They're all just like, I'm like, man, you, you are very much overfeeding. <laughs> oh, oh my you're God. well loved. Um, but they have the bulldog body that they just mm. like, gain weight easily. Like I, one of mine, Scotty, he's the smallest. He is a little thick. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> it's okay. Scotty. <laughs> he's a little, he's a little one shape like all the way down (laughs) (laughs) I love it so you got the chickens and the dogs um yeah so okay Bailey meat season (laughs) gymnastics Friday oh wow I go to Orlando on Saturday holy crap yeah that's intense dude yeah and then I come back I don't think I have any plans other than just trying to get back into my normal life right whatever that looks like (laughs) oh and then like our next meet is in February right before I leave for Ohio too so it's just like oh my god you're like can you guys stop planning it like how far do you have to go for the meets um, this one that I'm going to on Friday is only in Hilton Head. So it's only 45 oh, minutes away. The one next month is two hours away. Ugh. It'll be all right though. It's still technically in Georgia. It's just like right on the Florida line. That's so crazy. I'm always impressed by parents who have kids in these sports that take them hours and hours and hours away from home. Um, and still be able to maintain a somewhat functioning lifestyle. So kudos to you and all the other parents listening to this, because I don't even know how you function. Keyword is somewhat functioning, <laughs> somewhat functioning. You get them there on time and then collapse. Is that what it is? <laughs> Basically like we, and like the meat itself lasts like four or five hours. Oh God. Like, so we're there all day and then like just coming home, I'm just like 
exhausted. I'm like, you did a great job. Okay. Bye. (laughs) Dang. That's crazy. Yeah. It takes a long time. (laughs) And it's like, it takes a long time, but like her parts that I watch are like a minute long. (laughs) Oh my God. So like watching her for a total of maybe four to five minutes over four to five hours. Oh, I would die. I would die. Good job, moms and dads out there. Holy crap. Can't even, can't even. Yeah. So it's, if I'm not busy enough (laughs) during this time of year, I'm going to throw in all the lectures and the articles that I volunteered to do. Oh my God. Seriously. On top of working my two and a half jobs. I, but, mm, yeah, you, I know Uh-oh. I'm going to cut back. I promise. It's part of my new year's resolution. As she looks away from me, like she won't make <laughs> eye contact with that one. She's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> my brother used to say all the time. Like, if you look to the left, you were lying. Like when you were talking to someone, <laughs> Oh, did you, was that to, to your left? Yeah, that was to my left. I was I was like, that wasn't me. even that wasn't even like a slight look. That was a complete head turn, like profile <laughs> yeah. view. She's like, no, I can't. <laughs> it made me, it, that just made me think of my brother used to say that all the time. He used to say, if you look to the left, you're lying. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but I think he's right. <laughs> you're like, oh, I did. Yeah. Oh, so crazy. Um, yeah. Any other housekeeping things that we have to do? I don't think so. I can't remember. I don't think so um we just are getting back into the swing of things so yeah yeah so um hopefully we'll get (laughs) I say I feel like we say this a lot hopefully we will get back to a normal routine here soon (sighs) so thank you everyone for uh putting up with our craziness but I feel like everybody understands because um we're all technicians here so yeah I feel like everybody else was crazy over the holidays too <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> we're just now realizing that we were actually gone for three weeks <laughs> <laughs> they're, like, oh. they're like oh I don't feel so I guilty have- for not downloading anything <laughs> oh my god that's so true <laughs> well today we're shifting gears a little bit um we're starting our nursing care series, right? Is that? No, we already did our nursing care basics. So we started it and we took a break for three weeks and then we, we did yes. <laughs> just kidding. So this is the advanced nursing. This is the advanced nursing. Okay. So we're continuing with nursing care. Cool. Right. Sorry guys. This is what happens when I've been like, your brain's been a little much disconnected like- from the world for a while. It's okay. <sighs> we forgive you. Oh, thanks. No problem. Um, so we're, I, the cool thing is this is based off of something that you presented last year at ACBM, right? Yeah. So cool. So if you did go to her lecture last year at ACBM, um, this will sound familiar, but sometimes it's good to just have refreshers. <laughs> um, so yeah. I uh, like this lecture. It, it makes me miss critical nursing care, which I get to do occasionally, just not super often, but basically like what we're going to talk about, um, it's just skill utilization a little bit for ourselves. And then, uh, I mean, if you work in an IC, whether it's ER general practice, um, any of that, yeah. Then you kind of know, like our patients are weak. Generally (laughs) they're scared And they're usually set, they're at risk for setbacks, such as like malnutrition, infections, depression, and progressive like disease processes. So it's like, I personally like ICU care because I know what the setbacks can be. Yeah. Well, and I think when, when you work in ICU too, like, um, we do form those bonds with our patients. Right. And so you can see the progression, especially if they're there for multiple days. Right. And I think it really does take someone who, um, 
who can really use our like investigative skills as technicians to be able to like look at our patients, see what's happening. Um, you know, maybe that, that empathy that we, we have for animals and really be able to like recognize it and bring it to the attention of, of the doctors. Cause let's be real. Most of the times, really the only times doctors are looking at their patients are, you know, that physical exam once a day. And maybe mm-hmm. as they're walking past, whereas like technicians, when we're, when we're in that ICU role, like we're with them yeah. our entire shift, really. Yeah. I mean, you're most, of the, most places like you're in the ICU room the whole time. Right. Like, wow. so, so you were there for a, a lot of it. And, and I think this, you know, when we're talking about some of these skills too, is like, um, I think we're going to do like a fear free or similar type idea episode, but using those skills plays into it as well, which is, which is really nice. And like our monitoring or handling, talking about nutrition. And, and I think all of those are really important skills that we utilize with these patients. Yeah. It's like all the stuff. All, all of it gets used. <laughs> and, and that's, I think that's why I like ICU care so much is because it might seem little, like when you're talking about like nutrition or just padding a cage. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. But it, it means a lot to the patient at the time of like healing. Like it, it's, it's so minor for us to just add that extra towel in the cage or something like that. Um, for for padding and bedding, but like, I don't know, it really, it can make a difference for a patient. Yeah. And I, um, I love that you put this in here. (laughs) Um, like the technicians that are dealing with these patients really should be aware and familiarize themselves with, with what's going on with the patient. Um, I think it's really important, you know, you do the rounds with like the previous techs that worked with them, you know, go look at the medical record and, and look at blood work, look at other diagnostics that have been done, look at the treatment plan, the doctors like, you know, figured out. I think that's really important instead of just blindly doing the treatments that are on a treatment sheet. Like, I, I think-, think that's a sign of like a really good ICU nurse is someone who can incorporate all that stuff. Yeah. Into- so you want to, you want to look at like past blood work where you want to see where you're at. You want to see mm-hmm. wh- which way you're heading. Yeah. Um, you also want to know if a patient has received like things like chemotherapy or immunosuppressive mm-hmm. medications, or even a, has potentially a zoonotic disease like lepto. Um, yeah. Cause let's, let's face it. Things get crazy. And sometimes people forget to put those warning signs <laughs> on a cage or a chart. So exactly. it's really important to make sure that you look and see. Well, and you got to think too, like on. we're human and it's simple. Mm-hmm. I feel like it can be simple to miss some lepto possible suspects just because yeah. if you're seeing a patient for azotemia. Um, well, and sometimes the doctors just like put like differential diagnosis and they go, um, you know, pyelonephritis, leptospirosis, blah, 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 blah. And yeah. they put that in the notes, but they don't verbalize it because yes. some doctors don't do that. So if you don't take that step to familiarize yourself with the case, you have no idea sometimes that you're like, wait, that's a differential diagnosis. Well, that that's a game changer <laughs> for the <Yeah>. ICU. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a game changer, even like with our rabies suspects, like it, it's, mm. that should very much be verbalized, but like, yeah. What if, what if, you know, it's yeah. like you have a neurologic patient who's having seizures and then you're like, Oh shoot. Well, this patient actually isn't up to date on rabies vaccine. Like, <laughs> you know, it's oh, like, yeah. Cause I, I feel like, especially in, I am to go back that far. Like we don't look at vaccine status a ton, you know, it's like, because we're That's, dealing with older well, sick people. We do well. We did with like the consults, but like other than the consults, we don't really like if I have a patient that I'm rechecking and it's been like a patient of ours for a couple of years, 
but think honestly, of- I'm going to assume they're not up to date with rabies because half of our things can't get exactly. any more vaccines anyways. Exactly. <laughs> so that's what I, mean. like it, I feel like it very easily could get missed it for certain things. Yeah. 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 Totally <laughs> so right. I think familiar, familiarizing yourself with a patient's chart and full record is super important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then like, so kind of going forward, that that's all looking backwards, but going forward, monitoring patients' vital signs every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, yes, your doctor should do a physical exam every day, but so should you. Um, and that includes yeah. vital signs and TPRs every day, if not multiple times a day. Um, I'm going to throw into vitals, like, cause I feel like most people say, oh, vital signs is like temp pulse respiration and wait and wait. Right. Like, I feel like that's like your basics, but I, I think we should also look at kind of going past just that, especially when we're talking about like in an ICU setting, Yeah, I think respiratory effort, right. You should be looking for that, like having a pain score, like just, just having that written down somewhere. Like we, we talked about, what is it? The Glasgow um, pain score, you know, using that in your, in your hospital settings, huge. And that, I, that really should be part of the vitals, right. And making sure everybody's on the same page. Um, you talk about weight, weight's hugely important, right? If you see a huge change in your patient's weight up or or down, right. Up or down, please double check it. (laughs) Don't just assume it was correct, but double check it. And if it's the, you know, if it's down, maybe we're getting dehydrated right. For whatever reason, you know, it's a DKA or it's a kidney patient, or maybe we're getting, we're gaining a bunch of weight and we're all of a sudden fluid overloading our patient. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think and recording it, please record it. Yeah. Record. (laughs) I think recording anything that happens in an ICU is vital. Like my patient yeah. coughed. Okay, cool. I want to be aware of that. And then I want to know if it's happening more. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, and it's just little notes that I make on the side or on the bottom of my, my TPR sh- or of my treatment sheet. So yeah. I think, I think that's important. And then like understanding the disease process and the medications that are being given. Mm. So this kind of goes into, again, reviewing the record. You want to understand what you're treating um, and then what the process of that could be going forward with medication. Yeah. So say you have that renal disease patient and it's on IV fluids, you know, the process of what you're trying to do with trying to flush out the, the kidneys and stuff like that with IV fluids. But you also want to be aware of what you can potentially cause with fluid overload and heart failure, um, when those patients are in the hospital. And then of course, understanding the medications, you want to understand if you're treating symptomatically for these patients, a lot of these patients are on just GI protective medications because Mm -hmm. they feel nauseous and feel gross. Um, so a lot of the medications for those patients are strictly supportive, which is fine, but you also want to know if they're, if they're on a medication that you should be wearing gloves with, um, like mycophenolate. Right. Or like maybe there's potential like interactions between medications. So you don't want to give them at the same time or, you know, there's just, yeah. Or complications or, you know, adverse reactions to these things, because, um, you know, sometimes we forget and we kind of go on autopilot. Right. Mm -hmm. And we go, Oh, I'm just going to give, um, I'm going to give you unison pretty fast and then they got it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's making sure we kind of, we take our time, which is hard, right? Like, especially when we're short staffed, yeah, but right now, if you <laughs> have, it, it, there's, there's a theory out there that says slow is fast, right? Yes. You take your time, you go slow you, you take a moment to really look at things. You're actually going to be faster than if you just try to rush through things and then you make mistakes and then you have to double check yourself. And it's like, honestly, just slow down, take your time, take a breather, connect with your patient, (laughs) you know, let your doctors know if, if you see something so that the doctors know as well, because it, it sucks when, 
the techs in CCU or ICU know something that's happening, but the doctor doesn't. And I've seen that before. And I'm like, dude, why didn't you bring that up to the doctor sooner? Well, and it's even like minor things. Like you, yes. Do the doctors need to know if something burned when giving it? Probably not. But in my opinion, yes, because like if they want to modify how something's given, so like say doxycycline, we know it burns when given. We try to give it as slow as possible so it doesn't cause cellulitis. Um, but if I notice that it burns when giving, even after, even if we're giving it over an hour, I'll bring it up to my doctor's attention and be like, Hey, this is really uncomfortable for this patient. Can we give it over two hours instead of one hour, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just opening the lines of communication for helping your patient to feel its best while in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So patient comfort. This is, uh, this could be a huge soapbox for so many of us. <laughs> I think it's really important for us to, yeah, yeah. Like, it's really important to remember that how comfortable a patient is, right. Can impact how quickly they heal can impact how soon they can go home because we're talking about, um, if they're comfortable, they're eating. Right. And we know nutrition is a great way to heal. If they're comfortable, they're not, they have less stress hormones and we know stress hormones can, can cause delayed healing. Um, mm-hmm. if they're comfortable, we know they're not painful and we know pain can like delay healing. So I think delaying GI movement. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, I think that's a big one is, is comfort. And that can be in so many different ways. Um, I think one of the big ones that you like to talk about is the, the, the cage padding. Yeah. (laughs) It's a huge thing for me. I want my patients to be comfortable. I want them to not hurt themselves. I want them to not get pressure sores. I want them to feel like they're at home laying on the couch. Yeah. You know? Yep. Cause like if I'm in the hospital, like that's what I want too. Like it already sucks being there. Yeah. Cause you know, it's not home, but like, if I'm comfortable, then at least I'm less miserable, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and I think too, like warmth too currently. Yeah. And it depends <laughs> on the patient, right? Some pets, like I've seen this and I'm going to pick on the pit bulls because I had one. So I can, I can say this, you know, sometimes they're big babies and they want to be covered head to toe with a blanket. I love it when they try to put <laughs> blankets. And I'm like, hold on. And like, you know, you talk to the owner and they're like, yeah, we have to put a blanket over them. Otherwise, then, this goes for cats too. You should yes. be proud of me because I'm talking about cats. Yeah, cats good like for you. Boxes. I know. Yes. Put a box in the cage. Yeah, like, get them somewhere to hide. Like they don't want to be there. They don't want to hear all the things. They don't want to see all the people and all the dogs walking in and out. They don't want to see the other cat coming up next to them. They want a box. They want to hide. They're going to most likely eat if they can feel comfortable. Yeah. And, and like a towel in front of the cage. So they don't feel like they're just out in the open. I think, I think, I think, um, I think people in general have a better understanding of dogs. (laughs) um, and, and their behaviors, but I think cats, I think, and there's, there's new studies out that are, that are really nice that are helping with us to understand it. But just because a cat is like that loafy potato in a kennel doesn't mean that they're comfortable. Yeah. It's not a comfortable cat. That is a scared cat. That's a potentially painful cat, you know? And so, you know, a comfortable cat is a cat who's like sprawled out and just like living the life. <laughs> it's hard to assess a cat's pain too, if they are scared. Yeah. Like it's because they're meant to hide that they're meant yeah. to hide it. So a patient comfort to me is a huge deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you can start with asking the client, like what is normal for this patient at home? Mm-hmm. Right. Like if I were to know like, oh, the pit bull loves being in a giant bed with a blanket over them. Well, then I'm going to understand that that's something that that makes them feel good. Yep. And I can maybe provide that there. You if it's the cat, company. you know, yeah. like they, they always sleep on the heating pad. Well, if that's the case, you know, maybe ask the owners if they can bring the heating pad in, if you don't already have one, because mm-hmm. 
not all clinics have it. Um, and just have that bit of comfort, right? So talk to clients. You'd be surprised what they tell you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then like this patient comfort leads into um, uh, what we're doing with our patients as well. So consolidating our cage visits and our walks with times that coincide with our blood draws, um, coincide with owner visits, coincide with diagnostic testing. Again, these patients are scared. They don't feel well. They don't want to be in and out of their kennel constantly. It's just like, okay, again, human medicine, when you're in the hospital and they check your vital signs every hour or two hours, like, well, they, they check your vital signs. And then an hour later, they're like, oh, we have to give you this medication. And then an hour later, they're like, oh, we have to give you this. And then, and then an hour I'm later, they're like, oh, I have to do blood, blood draw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, stop it. Like, stop, stop it. it. And it's all day, all night. And I'm just like, can you just let me sleep? Yeah. And so it goes for our patients too. consolidate things, make it. So you're only getting in those cages every four hours, if possible, like mm-hmm. got to allow these time, these patients time to rest. Yes. Yeah. And, and this, this kind of goes along with like the consolidating cage visits. There's also understanding that there's a time for a cage visit that includes absolutely no treatments, no diagnostics, nothing. It's just some TLC time. Yeah. Right. And that could be as simple as just petting them. That could be as simple as you know, engaging them with food, like, cause you know, sometimes like some of our patients won't eat unless you're interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Cats. Mostly cats. <laughs> um, sometimes some dogs, see. right. Some picky dogs do it. Um, put it in your hand and like pet them as they eat. Right. Pretend you're eating it and then give it to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, this smells good then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, in, 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 and doing something like petting them or just offering food or treats that builds a level of trust, right? Where they don't think every single time somebody comes into my kennel, I'm going to get hurt or I'm something adverse is going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So it helps with, it helps with our treatment of these patients too, because then they're not just like automatically on fight or flight every single time we come in. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes they're like, Oh, what are you going to do? And you're like, Oh, you're not eating me right now. Right. <laughs> I think that's a big deal. Um, my next stickler here is patient hygiene. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Even though I say consolidate cage visits, if your pet soils a blanket, get in the cage and clean it out. Like yeah. we really want to reduce the risk of UTIs, urine scald, fecal scald, um, feces just in the hair in general. Like we don't want our patients going home smelling like they've laid in their own waste. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so well, what I do that, but most animals don't appreciate being covered in poo. No. And I, I have a habit every morning when I get my vital signs first thing in the morning, I'll give them a little butt bath or like I take some waterless or something and just give them a little wipe down if they need it. Um, even if they don't really need it, I still do it just because it's clean. Yeah. I change out their bedding every, if not once a day, twice a day, depending. And then in between if it's soiled, but like, even if it's not soiled and you have the best patient in the world that doesn't pee or poop in the cage, which does happen, Mm -hmm. I still change that bedding (laughs) Yeah, because you want nice, clean bedding. So. Yeah. And I think, well, depends on how much bedding you have, but hopefully we've talked about this before. I think we talked about it last episode. Hopefully you have plenty of blankets and plenty of towels and plenty mm-hmm. of bedding. If not, ask your clients for some. <laughs> in your hotels. Right. Exactly. And that goes too for like, so with hygiene too, it goes for like checking our IV catheter sites, checking our blood draw sites. Um, we want to make sure all of that, those areas are clean. Um, especially our IV catheter sites. I kind of stuck on this last episode where I really can't stand when blood is on the tape because it's just a cesspool for bacteria. So if there's blood on the tape, please change it and put fresh tape on. Um, Okay. I'll leave it at that because (laughs) (laughs) 
um, patient movement, um, especially for our older labs who are just recumbent. Um, I do careful patient rotation. I'll sometimes just get in their cage. It's those consolidated cage visits where you get in there and you're doing a loving. That's when you start moving their front leg or moving their back leg and just doing some passive range of motion. Yeah. Without touching feet, usually just because <laughs> a yeah. lot of like that. Um, but just passive range of motion. And then when we get up and go outside, I gently help them up, lay a yoga mat down. So when they get out of the cage, they don't slip. Um, and then we just do slow walks around, um, because I feel like movement alone helps to get blood moving. It helps to relax patients who might be anxious. It also helps to get the gut moving. Mm -hmm. So if we have those patients who are unable to walk, um, assisting with a walk can help increase a perfusion and increase that GI motility and help get patients eating. And it can ultimately just assist with the whole entire patient's ability to heal. And I will say when we're talking about getting them moving, <laughs> excuse me, um, pay attention to your patient because if you have a critical patient that has respiratory disease, that is anemic, that is, you know, having some severe metabolic disease going on or cardiac disease or any of those things pay attention to your patient. Um, if they have to take a break while walking, allow them to do that. Um, because there are some patients that just getting up and moving a few feet is exhausting. Um, and if we just keep pulling them and trying to get them to go, you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. Not only is it uncomfortable, but it could be very distressing for a patient if they feel like they can't breathe. Yeah. Um, and, and it can lead to them potentially like collapsing and, yeah. and nobody wants that. I Lots hate when that happens. Those patients are the patients that benefit from like passive range of motion in the cage. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, you get things moving and you want their, like, say they have pneumonia, you want them to start clearing out their lungs, but yeah. if they're severely ill enough to where walking is a stressor for them, you want to just do the passive range of motion and get things moving in the cage. Yeah. And, and sometimes just like standing up and like getting them out of the cage to clean the cage and then putting them back in that can sometimes be enough to just like, all right, we're, we're getting some stuff moving. Yeah. And just Um, rotating and like mm -hmm. coupaging. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm a big fan of coupaging. Yes. I like it. And, and I, (laughs) our nutrition VTSs would be very proud of us. Um, one of the biggest parts of our nursing care is nutrition, right? Mm-hmm. Every patient, every time. Um, and that, you know, we need to keep the gut moving. We need to keep it uh, nourished. We need to keep our pets nourished because, you know, if we start getting low proteins, well, then medications, certain medications don't work appropriately because they're protein bound medications in the blood. Um, so it's really important for us to make sure that we're needing or we're meeting those nutritional needs for our patients. Um, it's important for us to remember if they've had surgery or major trauma or something like that, they may actually need higher nutritional needs to, heal versus, you know, maybe a patient who is recumbent and not really moving may need a little bit less. So we talk about, you know, if you guys know, this is like resting energy requirements. So RER. Yeah. So making sure, you know, our patients don't become malnourished. Um, and there's, there's a wide variety of reasons why that could be, you know, it could be nausea. It could be, medications that are suppressing appetite. It could be pain. I feel like we forget about pain quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could be metabolic diseases that are making them not want to eat. Um, it could be fear and anxiety. I feel like for cats, fear and anxiety is a huge one for sure. Um, because they don't want to eat cause they feel like they're in an unfamiliar place. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you know, understanding what those nutritional needs are. And I think this is huge. 
ask the owners what they eat at home. Do they have favorite foods? Do they have foods they absolutely hate? Like no matter what, like the cat hates fish. So if we keep offering them fish, well, they're never going to eat it. Right. So, you know, getting some of that information from a client so we can help or even eat, bring in their normal diet. That's Mm -hmm. I had a cat, uh, last week that I stayed with the cat loved ZD. It was so weird. <laughs> I was like, like, ZD is amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was like, and that's all the cat ate was ZD. And I was like, all right. Like, I mean, I can understand if it's got food allergies and it's got a food aversion. That's the other thing too, right? Like if you've got a GI patient, if you've ever <laughs> had something to eat and then had like food poisoning from it, yeah. Or you-, you drank too much of a certain kind of alcohol and you vomited your guts out. You know what a taste aversion is. Yeah. <laughs> like or you associate smell. that thing with vomiting for the rest of your life. Right. Oh. So the same thing happens with our GI patients. Like if they're super nauseous or their guts hurt for whatever reason, and we offer them a food they may start associating that smell, that taste with how horrible they feel. So if you've got a GI patient, I'm, and I'm betting this is what the cat does, right? Like it eats ZD. The reason it eats ZD is probably because it has some GI disease or allergies. So other foods, (laughs) yeah, every other food, it's like, I've got food aversion, but ZD, I know I feel good on. So, you know, understanding that, that also like a food allergy or food sensitivity is very important to know if our patient's hospitalized. Oh yeah. Because if we know a patient has food allergies and every time it gets a bite of something that's not on its diet, it has massive blowout and diarrhea and it has insane vomiting. And then we feed, yeah. And we feed it to them. And all of a sudden they have massive blowout diarrhea and vomiting. And we're like, what's going on? Well, yeah, (laughs) they have a food allergy or food sensitivity. And we just gave them massive blowout diarrhea. So it's important to understand nutrition. It is. It is because like with our patients in the ICU, their body just goes undergoes stress. Yeah. And then of course, when they're anorexic, their body needs to find energy and it tends to take from the lean body mass, um, which leads to protein catabolism, like Yvonne kind of already talked about, um, versus in our healthy animals, the body takes from fat during starvation, which leads to hepatic lipidosis in our fat cats. Um, (laughs) so it's no longer recommended for several disease processes to actually fast a patient, but instead to feed them as soon as a patient is able um, and I was gonna like, say, I think the big one I think of is pancreatitis. Very much so. Pancreatitis, like you should feed those patients as soon as you can get the nausea under control. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yes, it takes resting the gut a little bit, but I remember learning in school, it used to be like a 48 hour fast. Yeah. A pancreatitis patient. And now it's like, seriously, just try to give them serenia, give them an hour or two, and then try to feed them. Like you have yeah. to get food in their system in order for their body to heal and not start taking from other places within their body. Um, and just remember too, that as, as veterinary professionals, that's, that's what we are, right? We are capable of calculating our RER, um, and helping our doctors, uh, implement a feeding plan. So knowing what food is best for our pet or, or excuse me, our patients. Cause, um, so RER is going to be your weight in kilograms and we're going to multiply that by 30 and then add 70. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not an exact number, but this is pretty close. And then when we talk about like an increase because of increased demand, we take our RER number and multiply it by, you know, increase of like 1.25%. Or, you know, if we have an overweight animal, we're going to decrease our RER. Um, So these are just basic numbers for us to have. So when we're talking about feeding our patients, obviously, if we can get them to eat it themselves, that is the best way to get nutrition into our patients. Um, so enteral feeding is the, the best way to get like normal gut function, get nutrition in, um, you know, 
ideally they'll eat on their own, but sometimes we have to entice them. So with cats, like I like if we're doing wet food, I'll warm it up by like seven to 10 seconds. It like doesn't really warm up the food, but it warms it up just enough that it's kind of smelly and yeah. cats eat by smell. Yeah. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, just a little bit of heat up kind of gets it stinky, which is gross for us, but it's great for them. Um, syringe feedings. I think that's a, that's a sticky place because we don't want to cause aversion with syringes, but some animals do great with syringes, right? So like, well, that, like the ones gotta, that lick it off. <laughs> cool. Well, you gotta if you're forcing it in, you, don't do it. The one, some, sometimes you just need that jump start, right? Yeah. Like, you know, when you're so nauseous, like you can't tell if you're hungry or you're nauseous. Oh, like, I hate that. So, I meant you're so hungry. You can't tell if you're nauseous or hungry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, so it's just like some of those patients just need that initial force feeding right to get their gut to realize like oh okay i was just like super hungry yeah. i'm not nauseous let me continue to eat yeah and i think that's part of enticing them to eat right like sometimes i'll just do like a little dab on their nose or sometimes i'll put it on their foot so they're like oh and they have to clean their foot and then all of a sudden they're like oh oh wait yeah, i like other that. ways to do it other than syringe feeding but yeah. yes some of them do just need that like just put a meatball in their mouth and see how <laughs> Right. Exactly. And then there's like tube feeding. So there's nasogastric or nasoesophageal feeding, and then there's, um, esophagostomy feeding. Um, so those are different tubes that can be placed. Obviously a nasogastric or nasoesophageal is something that we can do. Yep. It's very easy. Um, you know, just, we always, at my clinic, we always took, um, uh, x-ray after yeah. we place a feeding tube just to ensure we're not in lungs because you don't want tubes in lungs. That's all sorts of bad. No. Um, and we do two view x-rays, not just a lateral. We did a lateral and a VD because mm -hmm. we've been bit in the butt a couple of times where we just did a lateral and it looked beautiful on a lateral. Then we started feeding and the dog started coughing. And then we did a VD and we're like, Oh, no, that's, that's definitely in the lungs. So just making sure, you know, the placement is appropriate. Yeah. And then you could do either spot feedings or you could do a CRI feeding. I do um, love CRI feedings. Yeah. Cool. CRI is great for some of these patients because it's a small amount, right? And their guts kind of can tolerate small amounts instead of big boluses. Yeah, exactly. It's like a consistent small amount that just moves happily through the gut. And then I just, I like them. Yeah. Um, and then also, you've got the two, you can keep track of how much food is going in. Yes. Yeah. That is very true. Like you control that to a T. Yep. 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 Um, so this is typically if you've got a patient who's not meeting their RER needs, um, with voluntary eating or syringe feeding, this is when we're placing a, a feeding tube. And this is something too, that sometimes doctors forget about it <laughs> and we're the ones that bring it up and be like, Hey, they're going in for surgery for a foreign body. They were already picky eating beforehand. Can we just place the tube while they're out? Yeah. Right. Um, and if we pull it later, great. But if we want to try to place it later and now we have to like, if we're doing an esophageal tube, then we have to reanesthetize them. Like why, like, why don't we just pull it? or, you know, place it and then pull it later. Um, so sometimes that takes us having that conversation to remind them of that part. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, technicians, we, we either place them or we assist with placing, um, you know, we monitor the function of the two, make sure it's properly cared for and monitor for complications. And then we're also like looking for appetite. So kind of like what Jordan was saying with the whole stimulating them to see if they eat on their own, you know, I will sometimes just offer them food first because yep. if they eat on their own, great. Then I don't have to syringe feed them or tube feed them. But, you know, if they only eat like a couple of bites, you know, maybe I do a top off. So it really just depends on you know, what, how they're doing and, and maintaining it. Um, the other option is parenteral feedings. Uh, 
I feel like parental feet, parental feedings is not a go-to. Um, no, I think I've not. done like two parental feedings. I think I've done one in my entire career. <laughs> right. Um, and basically what that is, is we bypass the GI system, um, for, for a variety of reasons. And this is, um, a solution that goes IV, uh, and it gets processed. It gets processed similarly, (laughs) but we bypass the GI tract. So we're not absorbing it through the guts and then going where it needs to go. This goes straight to the bloodstream and then gets processed, uh, by the liver as it circulates through. So, you know, the, the big thing with this is sterility (laughs) as technicians, we're handling this very carefully because we don't want to, um, you know, introduce bacteria because this is a food substance. So bacteria is going to love it. So you want to do this sterilely. Um, it's ideal to have a central catheter because those big proteins and things can definitely cause phlebitis, cause irritation. Um, and so, you know, this is an option. Um, it also can cause, so like, because the GI tract itself is not being used, it can, the GI tract itself is susceptible to bacterial overgrowth just due to the stasis of it. Yeah. So that's another reason why parental feedings aren't overly ideal. Yeah. The problem is that the guts just need nutrition. That's, that's their job. So if we're, if it's not going there, we cause other complications. So, um, ideally enteral feedings and not parental. Yep. Uh, the refeeding syndrome, if, have you guys, we've touched on this a little bit, um, in past episodes. So I briefly touched on it again, just when in reintroducing food to anorexic patients, it's best to start slow and increase gradually over two to three days. I know it's hard to not get excited when you have that like feeding (laughs) tube where like, once you place the feeding tube, they're like, now I'm starving. Um, yeah, like literally starving, but they'll like, they'll be ravenous to eat and it's hard to not allow them to eat as much as they want. Um, but it's best to think of those cats that have been like stuck in a shed. (laughs) and like somebody finds them and they're like, holy crap, they're like super emaciated. And I haven't seen them in like a couple weeks. And you're like, okay, but we got to go slow because otherwise we could cause problems. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so it's best to just introduce the half calculated RER in the first day monitor for signs of discomfort and nausea. Um, obviously if vomiting occurs then we're going to decrease the amount of food that we're administering if tolerated well, then the full RER can be attempted the following day. So on day two, Um, but if food's introduced too rapidly, these patients can experience refeeding syndrome, which is just an electrolyte disturbance. I say just, but it's an electrolyte disturbance that can occur after prolonged metabolic disturbances. Um, it's because the body has gone into starvation mode and it likes homeostasis. So it does its things to like keep the balance. And then if all of a sudden we just reintroduce all this stuff, the body doesn't understand what's happening. Like it can't react quick enough. Um, so sometimes we just have to go slow and it may be that we introduce the food and it takes like three or four days before we can finally get up to full RER. So, and this is monitored by blood work. So, yeah. Um, I'll touch on technician skills just a little bit, just cause we've kind of already talked about it with like. <laughs> patient range of motion, maintaining urinary catheters for me is a big one. Oh yeah. A lot of times you see this in the ICU. Um, you want to monitor urine output. You want to administer medications. Well, with a urinary catheter, you can administer medications into the urinary bladder. You can decompress neurogenic bladders. Um, and it's important to know that all of this do- needs to be done sterile. <laughs> like it's right. It's, I've seen a lot of urinary catheters where the closed system is just thrown onto the floor Uh, or like when the bag is empty, it's just put back on the bag's not changed out or the lines aren't changed out. Um, it's a, it's a thing for me, but ideally 
as technicians, we should just be aware that indwelling urinary catheters are susceptible for inducing UTIs. It's, it's not ideal for all of our ICU patients. Um, strict sterile technique is required. So again, it's one of those things where it kind of falls along the lines of the parenteral system. There's, an, there's a place for it, mm-hmm. but it's not always ideal. Um, yeah, this next- is why we don't just put urinary catheters in everything. Yeah. As much as it would be great to not have them urinate on themselves. Yeah. We don't do it because there are complications potentially from it. So especially if they're on antibiotics already, like if they're on antibiotics, then you're really running the risk of a a resistant UTI. Yeah. Um, even if the antibiotics aren't to treat a UTI, you still run that risk. So if the connection is a closed urinary system, that should be wiped and dis- disinfected every six to eight hours and urinary bags should re- be replaced when emptying urine every six hours while connected. Um, obviously that's ideal. Does it get done all the time? No, but that's ideal. And this is again, why and that's right. something, you know, in your hospital, like check to see what your standard protocol is. Yeah. Um, but you should be replacing those those urine bags. Um, and they make specific urine bags. Um, so you don't have to just, you know, re-sterilize IV bags. Yeah. Um, cause that's how I started. <laughs> um, the other thing too, uh, when you're, when you have a patient with a urinary catheter, please put an e-collar on. Oh yeah. Um, you- we had a dog that chewed its urinary catheter out and it was a female dog and we had to go scope it. Oh my God. Oh my Um, God. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So please make sure that they have an e-collar on. And then same goes for central lines too. Place an e-collar on your central line patients. Um, but central lines are great, uh, especially for those patients requiring multiple blood draws. He used to do these a lot in like DKAs, but now there's a freestyle Libre. So like, right. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to do a central line. <laughs> That's so true. Hmm. It's so nice. It saves <laughs> money, saves the practice time of placing a central line. And um, the comfort of a patient. Yeah, exactly. So veterinary technicians can place and maintain central lines. This does not need to be done by a doctor. No, no. Doctors don't need, doctors need to go be doing doctor stuff. This is definitely a technician thing. This is <laughs> and central lines can be placed in the jugular catheter, <laughs> jugular catheter, placed in the jugular vein, the cephalic vein. You can do long line catheters, pick lines, peripherally in central peripherally inserted central catheters um which is funny because we usually do a lateral or a medial saphenous we don't do cephalic as much yeah i was gonna say lateral and medial next um my favorite is a lateral saphenous but you can do cephalic huh so funny my doctor was like adamant about not doing a a cephalic and now i can't remember why but that's okay I think it's one of those things. I mean, maybe it's just something as simple as like, they have easier access to get to it. (laughs) Maybe. No, no. She's got to have a different reason, but I'll have to to double check with her and and figure out why. But if indicated, multi-lumen central lines can be placed in patients that require multiple blood samples throughout the day, just to allow for sampling without poking a patient, which your patients are going to appreciate. So if you are monitoring something other than blood sugar, say electrolytes or something every six hours, um, Mm. those patients would benefit from a central line. Um, And if you've got multi-lumen, like if you have medications that don't play well together, like that's great. You're right. (laughs) You can have it going through one while the other one's, you know, doing it. Or if you have like blood products and you still want to run some fluids, like there's a lot of really good reasons to have a multi-lumen central catheter for a patient. Um, yeah. So and as veterinary technicians too, we can also do amazing things like calculate CRIs and maintain CRIs and monitor IV fluid mm. therapies. Um, because CRIs are important to monitor to ensure like accurate delivery, because yes, we can trust a syringe pump, but can we trust it fully? No. Uh, (laughs) so doing those calculations, I think is really good tech utilization, Um, I love talking tech utilization because I think people think of just like the hands-on skills, but when it boils down to like tech utilization, like 
it includes like the math and the, the figuring out things too, that doctors do. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I have my doctor check my CRIs or he has me check his CRIs. Yeah. But like, that's still tech utilization. For like, sure. Talk up with your doctor about like, well, how did you calculate that? How can I double check? You know, it, I, I think that's super important when in an ICU to have more than one set of eyes on a calculation. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and I think too, when we're, when we're talking about nursing care, I think just, it, it is a, it's super about tech utilization. Right. And it, and that's, we've talked about this before, right? This is Touch. tech utilization <laughs> is, is one of the ways that we find job satisfaction and we stay within our career. And, you know, it, it, making sure the doctors understand that they have their jobs to do. We have our jobs to do, you know, yes, we help each other, but remember that our, our huge role when we're talking about critical patients is the hands-on and getting that information to the doctor. And then the doctor should be, you know, doing the diagnosing, prognosing, prescribing and surgery and talking to clients. Like that is, that is their job. Yeah. We get them all the information. We do the stuff they tell us to do. Um, and, and I think it's important the, the more we can do, the more proficient we are with things, the more skills we have and the, the better we're able to show the doctors those things the more they trust us, the more it raises their level of confidence in us and confidence in ourselves and confidence in technicians in general. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, compared to when I was a baby tech to now, like it's a night and day difference. Um, and we still have a long way to go. And I'll just throw this in here, which is, it's kind of funny because with everything going on with my dad and I was, I was at Stanford university, um, in their hospital, which is like an amazing hospital, by the way. Uh, but it was, it was interesting because all of their stuff was so similar to ours. And like, I started asking questions or I would help with things. And it was funny because you could see them exactly at that moment where they're like, wait a second, this person knows what the heck they're talking about and understands yeah. things. And it was like, it was really cool. Cause they're like, Oh, are you a nurse? And I was like, well, I'm a veterinary technician. And they're like, Oh, and then I would tell them that I work in specialty and you know, that we do this same exact stuff at my, in my hospital. And it was just, it was really kind of an eye opener to be like, damn, we have cool jobs. <laughs> it's really cool for us to be able to do these things and provide that comfort level for our patients. Um, and you know, grow our profession, which is what we do. Yeah. And I think it's like some of the things we talked about seem so simple, but they're so important. But they're huge, huge in getting our patients home and back with their families. Like that's what we want for our own pets. Right. So treat these pets as if it was your own because you'd be loving on them and hoping and wishing that they get better. Yeah. 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 And, and hopefully you guys work with doctors who recognize your abilities and you feel comfortable asking them questions and maybe, you know, going over things because when you have that kind of a relationship with your doctor, it's amazing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and you guys do so much better stuff when it's a team, right? Mm-hmm. And you elevate each other, which is really cool. So anyways, that's my soapbox for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but hopefully you guys, you know, let us know if you have other skills in your back pocket that, you know, when you're dealing with a critical patient, what, you know, what are some things that, that, that you really enjoy, that you like, that makes, makes it easier (laughs) for your patients, for you, for your doctors, for your clients, those kinds of things. Um, I'd love to hear it because, you know, that's what we're here for is elevating our knowledge and getting better and using those things that 
you know, someone else knows about that you don't. So, yeah, exactly. I agree. All right. Um, I guess that was my question of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anything else that we need to talk about this week? What are we talking about next week? Do we know? I think it's supposed to be the fear-free stuff. And nothing else that we need to talk about this week other than it's January and hopefully everybody's doing well, staying, staying healthy. (laughs) Yeah. Happy new year. Everybody's getting COVID right now. Oh my God. Seriously. Stupid flare of COVID. Everybody went back to doggy daycare and got picked up the, the, the dog influenza. That's just what happened. Did you see that there's a bird influenza now that made its way to the United States? Another one? That's susceptible to humans. Uh, another one? There's like, yeah, anyway. Yes, another one. Good Lord. I'm sure it'll make <sighs> COVID and then we'll have like a, what would they call it? Like a Covian instead of like avian COVID. Like <laughs> the a Covian flu. Yeah. Oh my God. That'd be horrible. I'd be like, I'm staying in a bubble from now on. Good Lord. Right. Exactly. I'm just not going to leave the house anymore. <laughs> All right. Just kidding. Just kidding. You can go out with vaccines and masks. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody have a wonderful week. Stay safe. Stay sane. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.